Exodus chapter number 1. Exodus chapter number 1. This evening we uh, set out to um, preach to you on the Desert University. And the more I read through the week and after I announced my message from Wednesday night service, the more I uh, read and thought and meditated on what I was writing down as notes. Uh, I'm not sure we'll get to the desert tonight, but the fact of the matter is we'll get close. Look at Exodus chapter number 1, and uh, this is uh, just uh, sort of set the tone and set the background. In Exodus chapter number 1, in chapter number 1, verse number 1, it's interesting that the text begins by saying, These are the names of the children of Israel. I uh, mentioned this morning in the creation story in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27, 28, that uh, the Bible is... um, very clear that when the Lord says six times, let there be, let there be, let there be, and let the, you know, the waters bring forth, let the, you know, the firmament be divided, let, 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 it's a word of authority. So in all of those six cases, the Lord speaks with authority, says, let there be light, and there was light. And then he comes to man's creation, and he doesn't say, let there man be appearing. He didn't say that. He says, let us make man. That's a, it's not authority. It's affection. This is the same kind of thing. Verse 1 says, uh, now these are the numbers of the... He could just as easily say, this is a, a, computer, a computer list of the numbers of the people of Israel. He didn't say that. He said, these are the names. You know it and I know it. When somebody calls you by your name... Uh, they, when they made the effort to know who you are, and that's why when visitors come to our church, we typically, if it's a first-time guest, we give them a card so we can get their name. Uh, you, nobody likes to be said, hey, you, you back there, the uh, fourth row back, six men in, what's your name? You know, who's going to appreciate that? So you, what you want to do is just look at the guy and say, yes, this is, this is Mr. Jones. He's visiting with us again and so forth. People like to know that you know their names and especially if been around much. So the case here, it's interesting that first thing he says in the book of Exodus, now these are the names, as if it's a personal attachment that he has to these people. They're not just numbers on a board, and they're not just numbers in a book, not even numbers in the Bible, they're names. So it's interesting. When I was reading the other day, it captured my thought for a moment. Then look down, if you would, in uh, verse number, when he comes past that first section, getting to verse number 9, it's interesting that um, it tells here, he said uh, unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we, and come on, let us, uh, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there faileth out or falleth out of war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us to uh, so get them out, out of the land. Therefore, verse 11 says, They did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasured cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. So verse 12 tells you, basically, though they tried to get rid of or to slow down the growth process of the Israelites, uh, everything they did to them to slow it down only increased it, which is obviously the Lord's undertaking for them because that's not a common thing. Uh, It is something I was telling my family a day at lunch. uh, I have a funny thing going on with my human body. Uh, I have high blood pressure. 
we've had that since I had the heart incident. What's amazing about it is that uh, I sleep and overnight when your body's at rest, my blood pressure is the highest. And when I get out and work and work hard for half the day, sweat like, you know, it's going out of style, I come in and take my blood pressure, it's perfect. And it's not just one or two times that way. It's been that way all along. So the problem is when my heart's supposed to be at rest, it's not resting very well. But when I'm out working, it's doing great. So I think there's something in it the Lord's trying to tell me that I need to work at night and day and morning and evening. And if I could just keep on working, I'd probably be living for hundreds of years. But the fact of the matter is I get tired and I have to stop. Well, this is the kind of thing this is. These things were that the harder these people tried to stop these people from having family and creating a God-fearing family, the worse it got. So bad so that in verse number 12, the Bible says that they were grieved because of the children of Israel. They actually became concerned about them, that these people are going to overrun us and in effect, control us. Verse 13, then it says, The Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And we mentioned that the last time we were together. And that means with not just a general, generic, casual kind of thing. Uh, they were forced and pushed and motivated with uh, insults and injuries, most degrees, the phrasing. In verse 14, it says, And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. And it tells you about that. And in verse 16, The king of Egypt spake, to the Hebrew midwives, of which the names of them was, and he gives them Shifra, and he said Puah, and he said, when you uh, do the office of the midwife, now do remember, these are Hebrew midwives. These are, uh, in essence, God-fearing women. So he tells them then uh, in verse number 16, when you do the office of the midwife uh, to the Hebrew women and you see them on the stools, that's uh, the, the delivery stools, if it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then he or she shall, she shall live. In verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. What's interesting in this case is this is the the first of three instances that you'll find in your Bible where some authority speaks up and says, we're going to kill off the children. It happens here with Pharaoh, and it also happens in Second Kings chapter 11 and verse 1, which was the mother of, um, uh, I think it was um, um, uh, Ahaziah. I think it's his mother who killed off all the royal seed so there wouldn't even be any, any son to take over the, the throne, you remember. And uh, she decreed that they all be killed. And she got them all killed except one that was hidden. And they couldn't find him. And that's exactly what happens in this story. There was one that was hidden in this story. And there was one other instance. Where was the other time where the children would be decreed to be killed? In Matthew, and it was who? The Lord Jesus Christ, and it was Herod who decreed it. And that was that all the children under two years of age would be killed. And there was one who was to escape. 
And that was the Lord Jesus being taken to Egypt. So the fact is, it's happened three times in the Bible, so this is not an uncommon decree, but it is a very sad decree. Then in chapter 2, notice if you would, in chapter 2, and look at verses 1 and 2, it says, There went a man of the house of Levi, and he took to wife a daughter of Levi. And uh, the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And uh, you ought to note that the hiding of the three months is a major matter. That's uh, that's uh, tied in the New Testament. In fact, let me just show you where it's hidden, where it's stated. Look, if you would, uh, in the, the New Testament. And uh, by the way, there's something uh, to, to help you remember the text concerning Moses. You, you know the... Uh, Used to be what a Seven Eleven store. Seven Eleven, is there Seven Eleven? There still are. Was anybody been to a Seven Eleven lately? Nobody. Well, there used to be Seven Eleven, and it was that they were open seven days a week. And uh, I don't know what the Eleven stood for. Well, you 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 want you're not too cool, you know. You. But anyway, they had Seven Eleven stores. Here's the way you remember about Moses, 7 and 11. It's Acts chapter 7, and it's Hebrews chapter 11. So anytime you come to the New Testament, you've got to find about Moses, you go to 7 and 11. You'll find it every time. Look, if you would, first off, we'll go first off to Hebrews chapter 11. And this is an important point about Moses, chapter 11. And look, if you would, <clears throat> in chapter 11, verse number 23. In Hebrews 11:23, the Bible says this, and watch carefully how it's written. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Now, tied up in that verse is a point that um, has to do with what faith is. And that's simply this. Somehow, some way, Noah's, Noah, Moses' mother and father got some revelation from God. Because faith has to have to do with a revealed word. You can't have faith in just vapors that fly off of a smokestack. You have to have an authorized word. You have to have a revealed word. That's why the Bible is important that we believe it because it's a revealed revelation to us. And that's why we can have faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the revealed word of God. That's how you get faith. That's how they operate by faith. And there's no exceptions and there are no exclusions in the Bible. That means that for them to have hid this child and do so by faith, it wasn't that they just put him out somehow and hoped that this would work out and that the king wouldn't find him and then hoped that the king wouldn't kill him. That's not, that, that can't be. You can't have that. The book of Hebrews is about faith. Chapter 11 is the faith chapter. And it's all built on the premise, what is faith? Faith is a, a, a confidence in what God has said. And what God has said, and you take faith in that, and that's how you exchange it. Where that's what we call heaven's economy. You exchange it on faith. You operate on faith. And uh, many Christians don't. They operate purely by, you know, instinct and purely by nature and purely by what they think or what they hope. But that's not what this is. This is a biblical point that these people, this man and this woman, somehow got a word from the Lord that this was a child of destiny. This son's not just your normal, usual, ordinary kind of kid. 
This is different, and the basis of that is proven in the Scripture by verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 11. So you go back to Exodus chapter number 2 then, and uh, note it carefully that um, a second thing that's interesting to me in this chapter 2 is that there was a man of the house of Levi, and he took to wife a daughter of Levi. Now we're talking about Moses' parents. So the truth is, Moses was a Levi. Levite was a, tree, a, tri- a tribe from which all the priests were taken. It just interests me the further you get over, uh, and Moses becomes the leader of Israel, and in the book of Leviticus, God talks to Moses, and then tells Moses to talk to Aaron and the priest how to operate the priest office. Now look, I think it would have been easier, and I know God knows this, to just say, Moses, you're a priest. You just you operate as the high priest. You came from the priestly tribe. I've been dealing with you. You just take care of it. But he didn't. For whatever the reason, the Lord had another plan for Moses' operation, even though he was a Levite of Levites, and he could have very easily taken over the role as a high priest. There's no reason he couldn't. So the fact of the matter is, it's rather interesting to me that Moses had all this exposure and this relationship, but yet God says, no, I've got a leadership role for you, and I want, I want Aaron to be the high priest. I want him to run the program of the, of the tabernacle. Also note, if you would look at verse number 3, and it says, When uh, she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch, put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. Uh, you might make the argument that she obeyed the king's command because uh, the Pharaoh, in effect, wanted all the babies to be thrown into the river. Well, she threw him in the river. She just didn't throw him in the river without him putting on an ark first. So the fact is, she may have implied the obedience to that uh, command. But whatever the case is, verse 4 then says, His sister stood afar off with, uh, to wit what would be done to him. And then verse 5, The daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. Now, uh, there are two or three things about this whole part of the story. Um, some liberal commentaries and I don't have any in my library now, but I have had them there, they call these the coincidences in Moses' life. They call them that. They call them the coincidences. First coincidence is that of of the large river where it would border where the people camp was and Egypt people came down to wash in it, it just happened to be coincidentally that in this one little place where the Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe herself, that that just happened to be where they placed Moses in the bulrushes. Just happened to be. Now, what we call that is from a biblical perspective, it's called providence. By the providence of God, where this child was placed, the Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe, and she sees this child. We call that providence. God had the child put there. I mean, they may have been walking down there, and they may have been all kinds of debris. And and uh, if Mrs. Uh, Mo, if Moses' mother went down and and took care of putting the baby there, then she may have had to step over stuff and step around stuff. And and uh, the father, in his wisdom and his discernment, may have put things in her way that caused her to put it in a certain place and within certain conditions of the bulrushes. Whatever the case is. They call it coincidence. 
we call it God's providence. The second thing about it is that it just note carefully in, in the text, verse number uh, verse number 5 said, When she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it, and when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. They said in the commentary, the liberal did, it's coincidence that the baby wept just as it did. Well, I don't think so. I think you'd have to say again it's providence because in this case, when the babe wept, she had compassion on it. The assumption is if the babe had not wept, then the mother or this daughter of Pharaoh would have had no concern for this child. It's just, well, there's one of those Hebrew children, and uh, somebody stuck it down here and uh, would do what my father said do, take it over there and drown it. But I believe because that the babe wept, why would we care if she had compassion on it? Why would we care if the baby wept? Why would we have any concern about that? What, what matter would that make? Unless the story is built on the premise that this child's life was spared because when she opened it and she saw it, it cried and she felt sorry for it. And in that context, she not only has uh, compassion and uh, she not only thinks in terms of concern for it, she then says this is one of the Hebrew children. By the technical order of the Pharaoh, that was a declaration of death. This is a Hebrew child. And she certainly could have tell whether it was a boy or a girl. And seeing that it was a boy, she could have said, he must die. But she didn't say that. What she did say, she then said, then said his sister, that's the he in the, the bulrushes in the ark, the girl, the sister of Moses, says to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse this child for thee? And the Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Go. And the young lady went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away, nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. The ideal of nursing it there is not only breastfeeding it, but it also carries with it the ideal of doing all the care that's necessary as a nurse, someone who would take care of all of its needs. So she didn't just take it and nurse it to give it a sustenance of life. She took it away to protect it from anything that might harm it. She served as its nurse, and the incidence of that is is to believe that it went on for a long period of time, a lot longer than just weaning a child it was a matter of keeping this child protected and under the care. And, by the way, the liberals all say it's coincidence that Moses' own mother got to take care of it. You'll forgive me, but I think a liberal who would say such a thing has marbles for brains. I think that's a safe bet. I think if there's not the providence of God in that, I don't know what it would be. So in the story about Moses, you have to get and line up all the basic things that are going on in order for us to understand what's going to happen later in Moses' life. Because I will assure you that um, my personal conviction is Moses was with this nurse, which is his mother, for a substantive amount of time. I'm not talking about a year or so. I'm telling you several years. I believe he became, and his mother became his personal caregiver 
for several years. I point that to an issue, and I'll show you in verse now. Look, if you would, at verse number 9. In verse number 9, Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take the child away, nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. Verse 10, The child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. And the thing about that is that she would still have been in the care and could well have been under the care of Moses' mother. Now, no guarantee, I guarantee you that, but there is a likelihood of it because we know of other cases in history where that the Egyptians used the Hebrews as slaves inside the palace in order to take care of matters that were, you know, not the nicest and the cleanest issues to deal with, and they called the Hebrew women to, to be enslaved in that, and they used them as slaves to that end. There's no reason to believe or think that Moses could not have still been cared for by his own mother, even as a nanny would in a home where the folks were very wealthy and very rich. You wouldn't know it by now, but when I was growing up, we had a uh, we had a, a lady in our uh, home, um, and Sally was a black lady. She um, she stayed with us. She took care of us, and uh, I still believe that's why I don't like uh, milk. Is because I remember handing me a bottle. And uh, her black hands was wrapped around that white glass of milk, and I didn't think that was a very good-looking thing, you know. And I, it just scared me, and I didn't want any part of that. My folks said after that, <clears throat> I never would take anything from Aunt Sally uh, that had, you know, like white behind it. You had to give it color tones or something. So the fact is, I had a black maid for a long, long time. And she took care of me. She got me ready for school. She took care of me like I was, uh, uh, you know, like I owned the place. And yet this lady became a part of our family, and we took care of her, and she stayed with us sometime. She'd go home sometime, and uh, she became a dear friend of ours. The fact is, uh, we weren't rich, and it wasn't one of those things where we had a lot to work with, but she didn't have anything. And so our family sort of helped her, and she helped us, and it worked out to be a good deal for everybody. And she didn't take care of us just when we were young and childish. She, as we grew older, Aunt Sally was there with us. So the point is, I understand the, the process that's involved here. But I also note something that rather is amazing. The devil, obviously, was behind, uh, I believe, all three of the instances in Scripture where a leader tried to kill off the children. I believe anybody who would do such a thing would be of the devil. I believe anybody who would try to kill off all children would be in a devilish act. I believe in America, abortion is a devilish act. And I believe it's a wicked thing for people to do it. And I think it's wicked on the part of our government leadership who endorses it. I don't think they're any different than Herod. I don't think they're any uh, different than Athaliah, the, the mother of uh, Ahaziah who ordered all the king's royal seed to be killed. And I don't think they're any different than the Pharaoh of Egypt, who ordered that all the male children of the Hebrews be killed. I don't think there's any difference at all in them. Well, the thing about that is, it's amazing that the devil uh, was foiled, that is, his plan was foiled by his own weapon, insomuch as the Pharaoh, whom he was using to frustrate the purposes of God, is used by God, to nourish and bring up Moses, who will actually destroy him. I think that's absolutely fascinating. That the devil tries to to kill off all the babies, and um, I believe he's still upset about Genesis 3.15, that uh, uh, the seed of the woman 
shall bruise his head. I think he's still angry about that, and I think he's trying to kill off all of them. You know, I think he did it with Adam and Eve's children. He tried to ruin the family. He tried to disrupt them. He tries to cause problems then, and it just continues. And even as you get into the book of Exodus, uh, and uh, Satan doesn't know everything, and devil doesn't is not omniscient. He doesn't uh, have God's plan written out for him. But it's obvious some things that are just developing, and one thing's for sure, that if God was going to deliver Israel out of Egypt's bondage, it was a fact he had to raise up a leader somewhere. And I believe the devil says to the Pharaoh, kill off all the boys. Oh, the Pharaoh said we're doing it because we don't want them to multiply and we don't want them to overrun us. And if we go to war, we don't want them to turn on us. That's what he said. But I believe behind the scenes, the devil was working to make sure that the leader that would help to rescue the slaves, Hebrew people in Egypt, he thought if he could kill off all the men, there'd be no leader to do that. So the fact is, I believe in this context, it proves beyond a doubt that the devil got beat at his own game. And I think that's an obvious and very conspicuous kind of thing. Look back uh, then, if you will, to chapter number 2 and look at verse 11. It came to pass then in those days when Moses was grown, he went out. And you need to underline that phrase, when he was grown. I want you to take you to the New Testament and you'll find out what being grown is. Look over this time to the, the 7, the 7 in what chapter will that be? I mean, what book? Acts. That's right. Look at the book of Acts then in chapter 7 and uh, note the text. Uh, first off, verse number. look at verse number 23. A while ago we were in Hebrews 11.23. Now we're in Acts 7.23. And the Bible says, When he was full 40 years old, he came into his heart to visit his brethren the children of Israel. That's what fully grown is, 40 years. So over in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 11, when it says that Moses, when he was fully grown, he went out unto his brethren, and he looked on the burdens that they were carrying, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren, and he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian, and he hit him in the sand. Now, the first thing you ought to think should come to your mind when you read that, and every time you read the Scriptures, you ought to think it through. And one of the things you ought to think through is this question. Wait a minute. He's 40 years of age. How, how is he even going to know that's his brethren? Well, you can be sure that he didn't dress like them. He lived in the house of the Pharaoh. He lived in the palace. He was trained in the, the best education that the world had to offer in the Egyptians and, and this guy, had there was no want for anything he wanted. It was right there. And he lived there for 40 years. And we know that he didn't dress like them because of what? Was anybody thinking about how would we know that he didn't dress like them? Let me tell you. You don't have to work your brain. When you see Moses go to the backside of the desert and he goes to Midian, you remember there was a man there, a priest, who had, what, seven daughters? And they said, he's an Egyptian. How would they know he was an Egyptian? He dressed like an Egyptian. He looked like an Egyptian. He acted like an Egyptian. Why? Because he lived 40 years as an Egyptian, except one thing. Remember that mother who took care of him? 
I convey to you that I believe that mother talked <clears throat> and talked and talked. Talked, T-A-L-K-E-D, and taught, T-A-U-G-H-T. That right? That's right. Talked and taught. And I believe she did a good job at it. I believe she never let him forget who he was. And I believe that can be evidenced by what happened here. I, I, how, why would he carry go out there? Hey, I'm, I'm good. I've got money in the bank. I'm walking in the palace of the king. I, I walk and talk on marble floors. And I mean, it's rich is not the word. I live in luxury. And I have no problem whatsoever. Anything I need, I get. And every need I have, they'll meet in a moment. And uh, slaves are at my beck and call. I'm a, I'm a happy camper. Now, why would he care about the Hebrews out there if his mother had not ingrained in his heart that your people? And don't you ever forget it. We, um, my guess, my guess, and it is a guess. My guess is his mother explained to him how this all developed. How it all came about. And I believe that served as the groundwork for the faith that Moses would eventually have in God telling him what he wanted him to do when he has the experience on the backside of the desert at a burning bush. When God speaks and says, here's what I want you to do. And Moses begins to give his excuses why he can't do those things. I don't believe it shocked him or it frightened him. I believe that he was recognizing that he's hearing from the God of the Hebrews. And I believe that Moses in his heart of hearts was uh, at that point in time perceptive enough that God's got a plan for my life and my mother has been nurturing me toward this all along. All along. And so in the passage, verse number 12, where it says he looked this way and that way, that's obvious to say that um, um, being a an adopted son of the Pharaoh and uh, through the daughter would put him in a position to kill an Egyptian, uh, his life wouldn't be worth much at all, uh, especially being that he's a Hebrew and uh, Hebrew boys were to have been killed back there before, 40 years before, and he wasn't. His life was spared. The Pharaoh, I can see, probably was breathing fire when he heard about this man killing one of his people and was rescued when he should have been drowned. So in verse number 12, when he looked this way and that way, obviously he knew this wasn't the right thing to do because nobody looks around unless they're doing something that's suspicious. So in verse number 12, he kills the Egyptian, slays him, and he buries him in the sand. When he went out of the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. He says to them, that did the wrong, he says, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And Moses is sounding like a leader, and he's concerned about the Hebrews. He kills an Egyptian the day before because he's smiting a Hebrew. The second day comes out, and he says to one of the Hebrews that's smiting another Hebrew, he says, Why, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And uh, that's the position that Moses has taken. I'm, I'm pulling for both of you guys. Why are you fighting among yourselves? Verse 14, this guy says, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when the Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to kill him, to slay Moses. 
But Moses fled from the face of the Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw, they came and drew water and filled the troughs of the water to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that you are coming to so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. And he said unto his daughters, And where is he? And why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter, and she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And by the way, uh, the word Gershom actually means a resident stranger. It means um, it's somebody that lives in a place but doesn't actually belong there. He's a resident stranger. Oh, by the way, Oh, by the way, that's what you're supposed to be on this earth. This is not home any more than Midian was Moses' home. It was not. And the fact he names his son in a reflection of what he absolutely knew in his heart, this is not home. I'll call him Gershom. And that means resident stranger. This will never be his home. It'll never be my home. It'll never be my family's home. This is just a place we're passing through. It gives evidence that Moses knew full well that this wasn't the end of his story. This was just a chapter in it. And the fact of naming this son gives somewhat of a a direction about his heart and what he felt in his heart of hearts. And it does tell us what you and I ought to be. We ought to be aliens here. We ought to be uh, uh, as... um, the Gentiles would be perceived as concerning the Jews uh, that we are not um, we're not at home here. This is not our place, and we're just passing through. And what happens with that is that we don't uh, allow ourselves to get entangled with this world and all that it offers, because it has nothing on us. It has no claim on us, and that's what the ideal of a stranger is. A stranger has no attachment. Uh, when we talk about homeless people, it's the same word, same concept. There's no attachment to them. They have no attachment to a place to sleep. Uh, I heard a, a report today, and um, not that I was pleased with it, but uh, it was a story about a man who was homeless. Uh, the bad news is he was not only homeless, but he was a homosexual. And uh, this fellow graduated from high school homelessly, uh, a man that he knew opened the back door of a bathroom off an alleyway, evidently, and left that door unlocked so in the winter months or cold times he could slip into this bathroom and sleep there at night. And he slept in that bathroom at night and went to school during the day and graduated from high school. Uh, Now he's over a big ministry. And I say ministry carefully uh, because he's he and his male lover uh, adopted a bunch of children and they have a care ministry. And they've made a bukus of money from people sending them money. And I doubt that people understand that they're a homosexual couple. But uh, money just flows in. And he gives this money away to people who are in need. Well, man, everybody likes a guy like that. So he's very popular. 
and uh, and he's um, he's rich, and he's gotten rich off of people helping them, and him helping people. Somebody said the fastest way to get rich is to help people and get help people to help you help people, and you can take enough off the top that you can get rich pretty quick. That's what he seems and appears to have done. In this particular case, Moses is keenly aware that Midian is not going to be his home forever, but he does want his son to know that he's a resident stranger, and he gives him that name. And uh, interesting, verse number 23, it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came unto God by reason of the bondage. Verse 24, God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. And that's interesting because he's 40 years, Moses is... uh, uh, when Moses was in the palace, he was in the palace 40 years. And then he had 40 years that he's on the backside of the desert. And uh, what's about to happen in this period of time of which we have, he has a son. And uh, meanwhile, while he's on the backside of the desert, all of these things mentioned in verse 23, 24, and 25 have taken place. And what's happening is these are just stepping stones of God's operation of what he's going to do to get Moses in a position to go back now and to be his leader, and he's going to be the one who will march Israel out of Egypt and will destroy what we call the leadership, the Pharaoh and all of his army in the Red Sea. So to get there, it's obvious that Moses had to to leave Egypt to be prepared to deliver the Israelites. He can't kill the Egyptians one at a time. And it seems that Moses thought, well, if I kill off one, you know, I may have to go out and kill another one. And once you kill one or two, I'm sure it gets easier. But God said, that's not how you do this. I want you to follow my directive, and I'm going to take you on the backside of the desert, no man's land. And and I don't know that you and I can fully comprehend this. Uh, If you lived in a palace and you had no want and no need, I mean, everything was right at your beck and call. And you had all the conveniences of life, and you had the education, the best that the world had to offer at that point of time. And you were under the authority of the Pharaoh's daughter, who was under the authority of her father. And as history records, and if we trust that history, uh, Pharaoh had no son, and Pharaoh had no other daughter, only this one. And with Moses being adopted by daughter, that means that Moses would have had access and probably the right to the throne of Egypt. And all he had to do, as the world would say, is keep your nose clean. Just don't wrinkle the Egyptians' nose. Just don't be mean to the Egyptians. Just just get along and life will be rosy. But Moses had something in his heart that wouldn't take that. It just wasn't going to take the easy way out. He wasn't just going to walk out on a bed of roses and, and, a, and a bed of satin. His idea was... I still have a heart for my people. And he kills an Egyptian who is striving with a Hebrew to make that point very clear. I believe that's when God intervened and said, I've got to get him out of here. He's not ready for what I have for him. And so he takes him to the backside of the desert. And oh, by the way, this place of Midian, uh, if you were with us on the Wednesday night services when we uh, preached through um, the life of Gideon, you remember who the people were that uh, Gideon came up against? It was the Midianites. 
the same people from this location. That's interesting. Here you have Moses in this area, and his son was born in that area. His son was born to the daughter of the priests of Midian. And the fact of the matter is, you can commend Moses for going out and finding uh, a priest's home. And, and, you know, he had no idea, I'm sure, when he saw these young ladies taking care of this flock of sheep. But um, he gets into the family and finds out this guy's a priest. And we have no way of knowing if this is a priest of the Most High God or whether they're a priest of some false god. We have no idea of getting that understanding from just what the Scriptures teach, but we can perceive that Moses respected it enough that he married one of the daughters. And I don't think he would have done that had it been a matter that there was an anti-God attitude about it. So I suspect there was some kind of sympathy for the God of the Hebrews for even the priest of Midia to give his daughter over to him. So whatever the case is, the stage is getting set, as it were, for the work that God's going to do in his life. To get to that, I think we'll have enough time. Let me take you to the New Testament for a moment. Look, if you would, at uh, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, you have uh, the breakdown, and I think it'd be good for you to see it for your own selves, that uh, Moses' life is divided into four or three categories of 40 years each. Look at chapter 7 of the book of Acts. And uh, let me just read a few things to you. First off, look at uh, Acts 7 and verse 18. 7, 18 of Acts. There it says, Till another king arose, which knew not Joseph, the same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evilly, evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. Now, that may seem to you that it says that these fathers did this, uh, you know, sort of helter-skelter. That's not really what they're trying to say. What it's trying to say is, under the threat of the Pharaoh, they gave up their children. So it was one of those things of my uh, taking this text without understanding any of the other, that is, not hearing or reading anything else to confirm it, it implies, at least implies, that it was a threat. You either give up your male child and let us kill him, or we'll kill the whole bunch of you, pure and simple. We'll just get rid of the whole clan. And some suggestion is that was a common order of the pharaohs. In fact, I have a couple of history books on Egypt, and one of the common things was for uh, any entity of people that the Egyptians feared they tried to override them and overlord them by declaring war against them and bringing them in as slaves and then killing off their young. And in doing so, it would uh, carry the idea, and it did in the book explanation, that they would threaten the family, if you don't give up the, the children, the sons, we'll kill the whole family. They were brutal, and they didn't care at all about compassion, uh, which leads us back to the, sec- the, the case where Moses was found, and Moses wept, and the Pharaoh's daughter had compassion. That's not common for the Egyptians. Uh, the Egyptians were a lot like the Romans. They did not have a lot of affection. Um, they lived by law, and that law was kill or be killed. 
And the Egyptians lived by it almost to a letter, men and women. So the shocker is that the Pharaoh's daughter had any compassion at all for this weeping child. But in this particular case, in verse 19, suggests they were evil entreated our fathers so that they cast them. The fact is it's saying something pressed them to say, we'll give up our sons. You know, it may have been that they saw that they were going to be birthing a child or a son, and they they very much protected it, and then they found out it was a male child, and they came to take it away, and the parents said, look, you can't take our son, and they threatened them. That phrase carries with it some kind of motivation that said they were pushed to do this. This was not a, a, a statement of, okay, yeah, take the kid, just get rid of him. You know, that's not what it is. It is a matter that in this verse of Scripture, evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. Verse 20 then says, in which time Moses was born. That's an interesting way to put it. In such a time as this, God raised up Esther in the Old Testament. In such a time as this, God raised up David. And here it is in verse 20. In which time Moses was born, was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. Verse 21. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And by the way, it's uh, interesting that they use the same phrase in verse 21 about Moses was cast out, as was cast out in verse 19, which it was done to those that died. So the idea of the casting out was a giving up. Moses' parents gave him up. They didn't throw him into the water, and they didn't throw him to the lions, so to speak. But in verse 19... It was a matter they threw those children out. They gave them up by threat and motivation. Verse number 23 then says, When he was, or excuse me, verse 22, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. You know, you can't read uh, any of the books about Moses. And I'm talking about uh, uh, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, five books of law. He wrote all of them. You can't read the first five books of the Bible and think that Moses was stupid. You know, you, you just you sort of marvel at um, this man writing all this under God's direction. And what's also amazing is that, think about it, that God spoke to Moses constantly. Nobody in the Bible is it said about they spoke or God spoke to them as often and frequently as God spoke to Moses. As I've said before, uh, the book of Leviticus in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus, I think, proved beyond any question uh, the inspiration of Scripture because there's hardly a chapter in the book of Leviticus that God is not being, it starts right out at the first verse of the chapters often where it says, and God said to Moses, and sometimes it'll say, and God said to Moses and Aaron and to the children of Israel. And sometimes it'll say, and God said to Moses, and Moses told Aaron, and Aaron told the children of Israel. The point made about it is God's always talking to Moses. You just think about it. How many people can you remember in the scriptures where God spoke frequently to Well, he spoke to Moses about every chapter in the book of Leviticus. 
And the Bible declares it to be so, but that's not the only book of the Bible where he speaks. In this particular case, God notifies or tells us that he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and in deeds. Then it comes to verse 23, and it says, When he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Uh, verse 23 would cue you in on what I said before about I believe his mother did this training and nursing and nurturing and kept reminding him who he was. Uh, some people forget who they are and uh, they forget the rock from which they've been hewn. And the Bible orders us not to do that. In other words, it's saying don't forget where you came from. Don't forget uh, if you were on the wrong side of the tracks, don't forget where you started. If you started out in your family was very poor, don't ever forget that. And don't think for a second you couldn't go back there. Don't ever think that you're above that. And don't ever look down on people who are still there. The Bible indicates that in Moses' case, he was, uh, uh, he was about as good as it could get for a Hebrew. And yet in the midst of this, it came into his heart. That's an interesting way to put it. It came into his heart. It means it's a, it's a point of concern that you carry. And one day it just sort of blew up in you. I've got to go see my brethren. I've got to go out into the camp. I've got to, I've got to go out and wander among them. I want to see my brethren. That's the idea. It's some, I just need to do that. I was talking to a Matt yesterday, and we were talking about, uh, um, you know, um, there's some things in you that call you home. You know, I've lived in Indiana longer than I lived in Tennessee, so yeah, I, I love the state of Tennessee. love to go back and visit there. And there was a time where I felt, you know, going back home. I enjoyed that. Well, my folks are in heaven, and I have a, a sister and uh, a, two sisters and a brother still there. Uh, but the fact is, it, it doesn't seem like going home anymore. There's nothing that calls me back as it once did. But in some people's lives, they'll, they'll, have, they'll have hit a street where they want to go somewhere that's really dear to them because they have made a connection to it. It may be people they connected with. It may be a place they connected to. But they'll tell you, it's in my heart to go back. I want to go back. That's the kind of thing this is. Written as it is in the text, it suggests to us that it came on him and maybe one of those days he was looking out over the people and his heart just said, I want to go out and see the people close up. I want to talk to them. I want to see them. And the incident took place. But what you should note, and if you write in your Bible, you ought to write out beside verse 23, you ought to write just the words or the numbers 40 and put years beside of it. 40 years, that's the first one. Then verse 24, and believe me, we're going to stop momentarily. And verse 24, seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote him, smote the Egyptian. And verse 25, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. That tells you that Moses, while he was killing the Egyptian, believed in his heart that God was going to use him to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. How will he have known that? Because he had a mother who kept talking and kept taught, taught him. 
she just wouldn't quit giving up on the ideal. Remember, the reason she hit him was by faith. And I believe that indicates and demands that they had to get a revelation from God to say, this is going to be the deliverer for Israel, and he's a proper child, a goodly child. He's all in that together. I want you to keep him safe. And it says, by faith they did it. That means they had to have a word from God. Faith is not a vapor that floats around in the sky. It has to have a basis. Your faith is of no value if it's not anchored in what God says. You can't just decide on something and say, by faith I'm going to do this. Our, our Pentecostal and charismatic friends are, are all awash with the wrong idea about this thing of faith. You can't just say, by faith, I'm going to have a million dollars come in next week. Hey, you ain't going to get no million dollars by faith. Because you won't find God saying, next week you're going to get a million dollars. Now, if God were to reveal that in his word or reveal it somewhere in very concrete means and basis, other than somebody saying it, you know, they just can't say, God said he's going to do this. You have to have a basis for faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That means faith is attached to the Word of God. If you do not have God's Word, you do not have faith. I don't care what you believe, it does not matter one iota. These people had faith in something God said, and she, the mother, passed this down to Moses, because right here, Moses supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they didn't get it. So Moses is ahead of the game. He knows exactly what he's supposed to do, and he believes he's doing it when he goes out and confronts this Egyptian who's picking on the Hebrew. But that's not God's plan. And I'm not going to get through this. There's no use even thinking about getting to the desert. I can't get there from here. So uh, we'll pick up there next week, and I'll try to get to the desert. I promise I'll try to get to the desert. So I hope you'll be with us. I appreciate you being here, and I hope you'll stay with us for the fellowship. And as we've done on Sunday nights, We'll not have an invitation, but I'll ask you to stand. We'll have a word of prayer, and you can be on your way. If you need to talk with me about a spiritual matter, I'll be here for a few moments. And uh, if uh, you uh, have a need to talk about the matter of salvation, I'd be delighted to take time to do that. I remind you that uh, on Tuesday, we'll be calling for Mrs. Lentz at 10 o'clock at the Eskew Funeral Home in Edinburgh. And the calling will go from 10 in the morning till 2 in the afternoon. And at 2 o'clock, they'll have a funeral service. And uh, that will all take place on this coming Tuesday. I hope you'll pray for the Lintzes. And it was good to have Brother Lintz in the service this morning. And do pray for them this week, if you would. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your providence. We thank you for the work behind the scenes to accomplish your big picture purpose. And certainly in this story of Moses, there are lots of your work behind the scenes. And there are many things in this story that are exciting to even read about. And even if we understand only a small portion of it, it it has your fingerprints all over it. And I pray that you'll help us to connect to these things, help us to understand them, and help them then, Father, to be the basis on which we absolutely trust you with our full and complete life ahead of us. And I do pray that you'll guide and direct us in the, the, uh, the days ahead and when challenges come our way. And we pray you'll help us to be governed by your word. Help the word of God to guide our steps, our decisions, and help us to do it your way, knowing that we can have faith in your word and we can move forward on that basis. So I pray you'll help our people to gain that. Thank you for their being here in the service. I pray you'll work 
in all of our hearts. Pray you'll give us a good time at the fellowship. And pray you'll give our people a good rest tonight. Give them a wonderful day tomorrow. And as we go into our respective responsibilities, I pray help us to bear a good witness and a good testimony for you. And I pray for those in our fellowship who need a touch from you. I pray you'll heal them and raise them up and bless and minister to them. And I pray for Brother Bill Monroe that you'll take care of Brother Bill this week. Minister to his needs and encourage and strengthen his heart. And pray your grace would abound to him even this day and this week.